This is 100 Days of Dante, a podcast journey through Dante's divine comedy, one canto at a time. Join us online at 100daysofdante.com. Let's read together. Canto 14 of Dante's Purgatorio opens dramatically. Without any sort of lead-in, we simply hear two souls speaking to one another as if in conspiratorial whispers. Only later in the canto will we learn their identities. We are still on the cornice where the sin of envy is being purged. In the previous canto, we learn that the envious have their eyes sewn shut and thus must creep forward on their journey, penitent tears leaking out and running down their cheeks. Here, their eyes no longer see the worldly things they once coveted so ferociously. Instead, they are slowly developing what you might call, in the words of a great Stevie Wonder album title, Inner Visions. Through their penitence, they are beginning to look inward and seek the transcendent light of self-giving love. Sensing the presence of a living man in their midst, that is, Dante the Pilgrim, the two astonished souls beg him to reveal his identity what his name is and where he is from. This sort of opening has, by now, become routine in the Divine Comedy, but Dante's artistry is such that he can play a seemingly infinite number of variations on a single theme, suggesting layers of meaning even with the smallest of details. In the opening lines, for example, the two souls are described as huddled head to head. It's a simple gesture of intimacy, an image of mutuality, and of course, the polar opposite of envy, which keeps us isolated and abstracted from one another. Dante also describes them as raising their faces to the pilgrim, like flowers turning toward the light. This upward movement or ascent toward light and life, a metaphor begun earlier in the Purgatorio, will contrast sharply with the metaphor of descent and downfall that dominates the rest of the canto. Surprisingly, Dante the Pilgrim declines to give his name. His reason? I have not as yet won fame on earth. It's an oddly ambiguous response On the surface, it would seem to be a gesture of humility. But there's that little kicker, the phrase, as yet. Is there a touch of pride here? After all, we've just come from the cornice of pride, and Dante the Pilgrim is still himself undergoing the purgation of his own sins. Well, in any case, he answers the questioning souls, by describing the river Arno. Once again, he withholds a name and does not divulge the Arno's name to the others. He simply calls it a river that winds through Tuscany, starting on the mountains and wending its way toward the sea. One of the pilgrim's interlocutors wonders out loud why he doesn't name the river. Is it because the name is too terrible to say? One of the souls realizes 
that the pilgrim is speaking of the Arno, which promptly leads him into an extended diatribe against the destruction that envy has wrought in the cities of Dante's native Tuscany, cities like Casentino, Florence, Arezzo, and Pisa. Now, you might be tempted to stop me here and say, no, please God, not another diatribe, not another denunciation of Italian politics and morality. All I can say is, I hear you. There have been quite a few already, these diatribes, starting in the Inferno, and they will continue, even among the blessed in paradise. I can even hear in my mind a further objection. Listen, you say to me, pleadingly, the purgatorio is marked by a tone of beautiful melancholy. It is a poem about souls who know they have been saved and who joyfully endure the painful but restorative cleansing their souls so badly need. Why break that sweet, sad tone with what is essentially another political rant? I have two thoughts about how one might go about defending Dante against these charges. The first is that we need to remember that the Divine Comedy is an epic poem, and that epic tradition from Homer onward, has been distinguished precisely by its capaciousness, its ability to encompass the whole world. After all, it's an epic. You can see that reflected in the epic's use of multiple literary subgenres, from comedy to tragedy to lyric and beyond. You might say that epics are, by hallowed tradition, the kitchen sinks of literature. Now, if you think about it, in our own time, we are not unfamiliar with this sort of literary shifting of gears. Think of the best stand-up comics, how they can have you laughing so hard you're bent over double. But then they modulate their monologue into a darker, more serious critique of some cultural or political ill, ending in a full-blown rant that fuses wit an irony with what can only be called righteous wrath. It's brilliant when it comes off. The other point I'd stress is that we can enjoy this sort of Dantean rant the way we enjoy sports. Home runs to the opposite field and slam dunks and 60-yard touchdown grabs are, in general, fairly similar. And yet, True fans never fail to appreciate the infinitely small variations that renew our pleasure in them every single time. And Dante the poet doesn't disappoint here. The soul who denounces Tuscany, later revealed as Guido del Duca, traces in the Arno River a steep descent from its source in the pristine snowy mountain tops through its journey downward until the sluggish muddy river empties itself into the ocean because it is dante you know that this is also a moral journey as much as a geographical one each of the cities guido castigates is associated with a particular animal 
hogs, wolves, curs. Well, by that, I assume they mean a kind of nasty dog and foxes. It becomes clear that these creatures symbolize the way that envy reduces our human dignity to the level of mere animality. Dante, of course, lived long before we moderns became enamored of these creatures. For a medieval villager, some of these animals were in fact quite dangerous. The bottom line is that these creatures can and will snatch food away from each other if they can. To drive the point home, Guido invokes the mythological figure of Circe, who you may recall from Homer's Odyssey. Circe is the enchantress who turns humans corrupted by base desire into pigs. Remember that Dante embraces the medieval vision of the great chain of being, which places humans above animals, but below angels and God himself. As a person of faith, Dante the poet believed that if we are to experience transformation, it ought to be a transformation upward, not downward. But that is not what he sees happening in the world of the living, hence the rants. So, how does all this relate to envy? That great cultural authority, Wikipedia, defines envy as something that occurs when a person lacks another's superior quality, achievement, or possession, and either desires it or wishes that the other lacked it. The souls in this canto, by the way, represent the latter form of envy. I suspect that as sins go, envy tends to fly under the radar. Lust, gluttony, anger are more, shall we say, flashy. Whereas pride carries a certain ironic prestige as the root of all sin. It is worth recalling that Dante the Pilgrim has just come from the cornice of pride. So envy is next in line in the poet's hierarchy of sinfulness. In Purgatorio 14, Guido del Duca reminds us that envy not only means wanting something someone else has, but also wishing they did not have it. That's a dark twist that I suspect many of us have felt at one time or another. And I further suspect we might have a harder time admitting this compared to many of our other sins. Guido cries out, Oh, human race, why do you place your hopes where partnership must always be denied? Envy isolates us, reduces everything to us versus them. Partnership and mutual giving are lost. When Dante asks for his name, Guido tells the pilgrim he will do what the pilgrim himself has refused to do. Since God wills grace to shine in you so generously, stingy I shall not be. And in that phrase, Guido has signaled a virtue that is the opposite of envy. Generosity. The gratuitous as opposed to the grasping. 
freedom to desire what ought to be desired and in the way it should be desired, instead of slavery to the forms of desire that reduce the human to the bestial. Here we return to the idea of sacrificial love, which lies at the heart of the Christian vision of God's nature, of the Trinity itself, as a solemn and joyful dance of mutuality, love, and freedom. The canto ends with Guido criticizing his own home territory, Romagna. Here the tone shifts yet again, this time from anger to lament. But go now, Tuscan, he says to the pilgrim. I would rather weep and say another word. Our discourse has so wrung my sorrowing mind. Tears and sorrow. Perhaps they are not to be sought out for their own sake, but in the right context, that of penitence and hope. Sorrow for our failings and weaknesses can become part of the healing process. As the pilgrims hear the curb of envy, the object lessons of Cain and the mythological and very jealous king Agloros, the pilgrim moved a little closer to his guide, Virgil. Together, they continue their ascent. Thank you for reading Dante's Divine Comedy with us. Continue the journey at 100daysofdante.com. 100 Days of Dante is brought to you by the Baylor University Honors College with support from the Torrey Honors College at Biola University, the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, the University of Dallas, Whitworth University, and Gonzaga University in Florence.